In case you miss this, the other day there was an on-court fight between members of the New Orleans Pelicans and the Miami Heat. The aftermath involved ejections, suspensions, fines, and when Tyler Hero was asked about it, he said this. No, we took it on the chin, but as a team, we felt like it kind of brought us closer, connected us a little bit more. Um, if we weren't before, that's definitely brought us closer. And I just want to say, bullshit. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. It's sports cliche. The old, this fight or this loss or this win will do fill in the blank to help our team fill in the blank. At the risk of being a crank, I've been around. Teams are tight because they're tight. They're not tight because they're not tight. And a brief midseason brawl isn't going to have an impact. So we, as journalists, need to both ask better questions and have improved follow-ups to nonsense answers. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writer with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Franny Goldie, the Grammy award-winning songwriter whose songs have appeared on more than 100 million records. Name a performer from the Pussycat Dolls and Randy Travis to Diana Ross and the Commodores, and Franny has likely written for them. Oh, she's also involved in the Tupac song, Hit Em Up. This is episode number 353. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and your face looks like a bowl of cereal that's been left in the sun for too long. All right, Franny Goldie, here's my first question for you. Okay. We met via phone about two months ago, and usually I don't like giving away ahead of book stuff, stuff from a book, but I'm going to make an exception here. We met, we talked a couple months ago, because you are credited in a Tupac song, and the song begins with the lyrics. First off, fuck your bitch in the click you claim. Westside, when we ride, come equipped with game. You claim to be a player, but I fucked your wife. We bust some The song is Hit Him Up. It's an enormously famous, controversial Tupac song. I'm reading the liner notes, researching this Tupac book, and there's Franny Goldie. And I think, huh, that's weird. And then I look up Franny Goldie, and I think, hmm, that's weird. Why are you credited as a writer in the great Tupac Shakur song, Hit Him Up? Okay, so back in the day, in the 80s, we wrote this song. Dennis Edwards was recording a solo album. He used to be in The Temptations. He was a lead singer, magnificent singer, great guy. I worked pretty exclusively at that point with Dennis Lambert. And he was doing a solo album. So we were writing some of the songs for that album. And uh, one day we were sitting at Dennis's house and um, I had been sitting on a tape that had been given to me by Dwayne Hitchings, who had famously written uh, some stuff with Rod Stewart, I think among, among which were, if you think I'm sexy, and um, he had given me this tape probably, I'm going to say, year, year and a half prior. It sat on my shelf, didn't think much of it, but Dennis had asked me if I had any ideas. And I thought, oh, I'll bring that tape. Maybe there's something on there that's cool. So we're listening. We both were attracted to the vibe. And it had that, you know, dun, dun, bum, 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 and I was like, ooh. That is so cool. I don't know what prompted what. All of a sudden, I'm singing. 
but they, you know, I mean, kind of channeling and Dennis, oh, that's, that's cool. Enter his friend, I'm not going to mention names, who comes in with a big joint and says, hey, you guys want to have a smoke? I was in the neighborhood. We had a couple hits. We were having fun. We were kind of, you know, working on lyrics for this idea and melodies and coming up with ideas. We all of a sudden took out a um, atlas of the world. We looked up all of these villages in Africa, Mambuji, that's how we came up with all these names. And anyway, the next thing we knew, we had this really cool song. Fast forward and we go in the studio, everything's going great, the track's cut, everybody's freaking out. And it was very ahead of its time in the in the fact that not many people were putting electric guitar solos and things on an R&B track. And it just had a very different feel to it. In as the album was going, Dennis was having a lot of problems, Edwards, with drugs. Barry Gordy called and said, I'm stopping the project. He's got to get his shit together. We're spending all this money. He's not showing up on certain days. Different things were going on. And, you know, it's expensive to make a record, pay for studio, musicians, all that. So Dennis is cleaning out, I guess, somewhere. I think it was in a hotel somewhere. And the album was kind of on halt. While that's going on, somehow, and I don't know the whole story behind this, Whitney Houston was recording her first album. So Clive wanted to bring in someone to sort of maybe introduce Whitney. And he thought Jermaine Jackson, who was also on the label, would be a great way to go. So Jermaine comes in and Linda Blum, who was at Chapel, who was a song plugger, I don't know what they call them these days, sent Clyde a song called Don't Look Any Further. She knew the project was on hold. She knew they were looking for a couple more songs. She thought it would make a great duet for Jermaine and Whitney. Clive flipped out, loved it, sent it over. And it, as it says here, we recorded the song and it was a smash. The performances were marvelous. We were thinking about releasing it as the first single off of Whitney's debut album. Uh, I could launch both careers at the same time and it would have a very strong black bass. We found out through the grapevine that Dennis Lambert, who wrote it, had already cut the song with Dennis Edwards. Arista Music didn't actually have the copyright. It was one of those special deals. Okay, so we had to drop it. Jermaine came up with another tune, a beautiful song, so we eventually cut that. In the meantime, don't look any further, a number one R&B record for Edwards, our version would have been a crossover version because it had more pop appeal and Whitney Houston might have been, with the inclusion of Don't Look Any Further, 
had a tapestry, meaning Carol King tapestry record. Anyway, um, that's pretty much how it happened. Clive freaked. Dick Rudolph, who produced it, was on his honeymoon. He called me, freaked out, like, how could you do that? The rest is sort of history. Dennis cleans up. He comes back to the studio. Whitney goes on to have her record. Shaka Khan was supposed to do the duet with Dennis Edwards. That never happened because of her schedule. Saida Garrett, who did the demo, who had not really become a famous songwriter by then, did the record with him. And I guess the rest is history. Let's say that song winds up the first single Whitney Houston's album. It would have never. Let's just say it winds up on the album. It blows up. It is the new uh, whatever. You give good love. It's an enormous hit. Okay. All of a sudden, Franny Goldie and Whitney Houston are best friends. You go into the Academy Awards together. You go into the Grammys together. All this stuff. She's hanging out with you. She's drinking matzo ball soup at your house on Passover. She never meets Bobby Brown. You and her are best friends. Instead of being addicted to drugs, she's addicted to Judaism. Is it possible Whitney Houston is still singing today? Oh, my God. That's a good question. I think the answer is yes. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, she probably would. She probably would. So how did that song become Hit Him Up? Okay. I will say, I thought you were going to ask, ask me if it had worked out with Jermaine and Whitney, if I think it would have been what it became. Absolutely not. It was very MLR, middle of the road. I don't know if it would have done well on pop radio. I mean, they think it would have. I, I don't. Dennis is version with Saida is just so streety and gritty and it's got a vibe. It became hit him up because, well, first of all, several people had cut it already. Like Eric B and Rakim had done it. Mary J. Blige. Puffy was really into it. So he was using it on a lot of sampling it with a lot of stuff he was putting out. And then Junior Mafia with Notorious B.I.G. put out that song, Getting Money. And so when, from what I understand, he was answering him with Hit Him Up. That's how I guess it came to be. Are you like, your name is on this song. And again, that's why I fucked your bitch, you fat motherfucker. Are you like, um, I don't know, I just really thought I was writing a nice Nice love song. You know, like, are you confused by this whole thing as it's going on? Or are you like, this is great? Warner Chapel actually called me. Yeah, I was a new mom. My kid was born January 96. This was what? April, May 96. I get called in. And, you know, I'm all into being a mom. And you know how a new mom is. You, you have kids. And I sit down and they said, is this lyric cool with you? And I look at it and I see what you said. I ain't got no motherfucking friends. You know, that's what I fucked you, bitch. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I said, this is. And they said, well, you kind of don't have a choice because they already recorded it. And unless you want somebody showing up at your door, uh, 
you better like it, you know? And then I'll never forget somebody in the room, I don't remember who it was, said, baby needs new shoes. There's a famous story about uh, Suge Knight, the head of Death Row Records, dangling the rapper Vanilla Ice off a balcony by his ankles. And I feel like that could have been you. Oh my God, boy. Oh my God, that's crazy to think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in retrospect, I have to say, is it like so cool? I mean, that everybody from Queen Latifah, Puffy, M people, Junior Mafia, I mean, the list goes on. I mean, everybody in R&B in one way or another, I didn't even know, like somebody called me, I guess it was last year, this guy Peasy had this song, Two Million Up or something. It's like, it just keeps going and going and going. So in retrospect, did I make the right decision? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of cool. I mean, who would have thought this nice girl from Chicago, Rogers Park, would be associated with Hit Em Up? Do you get like every now and then to some like, whatever, $1,500, $2,500 check just show up for some song? Yes. You know, I mean, there might be, I don't know, like 10 writers on some of these songs that have been sampled from Don't Look Any Further. And yeah, my little check comes in and I'm like, okay, you know, thank you. I mean, they used it on, um, oh my God, what was that TV show? Euphoria. It was using Euphoria. Euphoria, exactly. Yeah, Rue, you gotta chill out back there. And then there was another one. It's always being sampled or licensed or it's shocking. And they're doing all these like biographies and different things. So you've written hundreds and hundreds of songs. You've had songs recorded by a gazillion different artists. I want to touch on a couple of them, if that's cool with you. All right. First one I want to bring up because I'm fascinated by it is the song Dreaming of You, which is a Selena's biggest hit. I think it is a beautiful, beautiful song. I've heard you sing. I feel like you could have sang that song just as well as Selena. I know that's blasphemous because she died a long time ago and died tragically. I think the song is better than her version of the song. What can you tell me about writing that song and what do you think of it? Well, it reminds me that a lot of my songs have to do with dead people. I wrote it with Tom Snow, who's a longtime collaborator. I wrote my very first hit record with him, which was uh, with Diana Ross. And um, uh, we were sitting around, you know, he was playing this little melody and it was so sweet. And I started singing, you know, late at night when all the world, you know, it just kind of came out. And um, I sang the demo and originally the demo is verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus out. And um, when we played it for uh, what would eventually happen with the song, the producer changed it to verse, chorus, verse, verse, chorus. He just switched it. Um, I was in New York with my husband. 
who was working, I think, with the 10,000 Maniacs at that time. And um, I went to visit my friend Nancy at uh, Sony International. And she said, I got, I've got this girl. We're going to do an album with her. I think she's a big star. She's really doing well. She showed me a video of Selena with this group called the Barrio Boys. It was sort of a duet thing. And I thought she was really good. And she said, can I put this on hold? And I said, I guess. I said, for how long? Anyway, the song was on hold for, I don't know, maybe over a year. But she eventually recorded it. Um, I loved Selena. I got to meet her. She was salt of the earth, such a great person, um, very humble. I mean, it blew me away when we were working in the studio and we were teaching her the song. I did, I did some of the background vocals on the record and she offered to like make us tacos. I mean, who does that? Um, like just really a good, per you know, down to earth. And I, per I like her version of it. We wrote it for the Jets. I went to go see their father, who was their manager, and I played it for him, confident that he was going to love it and that it was a hit for them. He passed. Wow. And of course, whenever I went anywhere, I always had cassettes with me because you never knew who you'd run into. And, you know, when I happened to be in New York with my husband, I, you know, took a meeting and seeing an old friend and you got anything for this girl? And I went, Ooh, yeah. Boom. So I do love her version, probably for, you know, more reasons than the performance. There's a lot to it. And her fans, oh my God. I mean, I get letters and requests all the time to put the demo up. You know, please release the demo. We want to hear the demo. I'm singing the demo. Um, maybe I will at some point. Your first big hit song was Getting Ready for Love, 1977, Diana Ross. You had seen Diana Ross in Lady Sings the Blues, fell in love with Diana Ross, the music, the sound, the voice. And then she ends up recording your song. What's the story of that? I mean, I, I was completely blown away. I was signed to Richard Perry. I was working with Tom Snow, who introduced me. Uh, uh, Richard introduced us. We were both signed as a publishing company. And um, that vibe was in my body and soul and I was thinking about it. And I was so blown away with her performance that she could not only sing, but she acted and she was so fashionable and cool. And we, he started playing something and I started singing, you know, the verse and kind of doing that melody that reminded me of Them of Their Eyes from the movie. It just went from there and we were demoing it at uh, Studio 55, which was Richard's studio. And she went to the bathroom, heard it through the wall, came in, what's this? And I'm like, wait a minute, what? She's a legend, whether you like her or not. I mean, she is a legend. I sit by the telephone waiting for you to call me. And when I'm alone in the night, the blues start to fall on me, baby. I'm I got to go in the studio. I got to hear her record it. I love the track. All the best musicians were on it. It was my first big cover recording. And um, 
it was amazing. Just amazing. You're you, you're a young songwriter, you're in LA, you're driving, you hear the song on the radio for the first time, correct? I heard it on my VW 73 Bug for the first time and I'm driving down Sunset and, you know, I wanted to call someone. I always would want to call my dad. You know, we had no cell phones, no car phones. And I spied a, a phone booth and I drove over to it, put in my dime or quarter, whatever it cost, called my dad. And I, you know, dad, my song's on the radio. And I stretched the cord and turned up the volume. I was crying. He was crying. And it was an amazing moment. If you hear your song now, you're in a CVS or you're driving or a mall or something. Do you get any buzz off of hearing your song now? Or is it just like, meh? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I always feel so, not to sound uh, Pollyanna or anything, but I, I just feel so grateful. I mean, what a killer fucking way to make a living. I mean, to be able to sit down and write and give your heart to somebody through music and maybe make them. I mean, I, I can tell by letters I get and things that have happened. I go back to dreaming of you. I got this amazing letter from this emergency room doctor asking me permission if he could publish an article because of something that happened with dreaming of you. Some young girl came in and I don't know what the circumstances were, but they had, she was like probably uh, 11, 12 years old and they had to do a spinal tap on her. And she was screaming, she was flailing. The mom was holding her, nothing was calming her down. And the nurse kind of held her and start and said, do you have a favorite animal? You know, do you have a pet? Do you have a da, da, da. Finally, was, do you have a favorite song? And the little girl said, you know, Dreaming of You by Selena. The nurse starts singing her Dreaming of You. She completely calmed down, kind of went in a trance. They did the procedure effortlessly. And his whole article in the Journal of Emergency Medicine was about the power of music and how it related to this situation. That to me was better than getting a Grammy. It's like that you, that music has that kind of power. Music makes me cry all the time. I mean, every time I hear Barbara Streisand sing, uh, Papa, can you hear me? And there's these chords in, in a section of the song that absolutely, I mean, they're painful, painfully amazing. And that's what, you know, music speaks louder than words. So in 1984, that notorious asshole, Lionel Richie, I'm just kidding, everyone loves Lionel Richie, leaves the Commodores. And it's kind of like, well, that's probably it for the Commodores because like Lionel Richie's the man, obviously, and he goes on his huge career. And they come out with this song called Night Shift.
ends up being actually one of their most enormous hits, written by a lovely Chicago-born Jewish lady named Brandy Goldie. What is the story of Night Shift? Night Shift. <laughs> um, okay, so the only real writer in the Commodores besides Lionel was Walter Orange. And Dennis Lambert was brought in to produce their album. And, you know, they wanted to be involved somehow in the writing if they could. So Dennis and I started working on songs for them. And he said to the Commodores, you know, send if you have any ideas or snippets or anything, put them on a cassette and send them to me. So that was it. Dennis gave me the tapes and he said, here, take these home, listen, see if anything strikes you. And I heard it was all it was, was bum, 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 bum. And Marvin, he was a friend of mine. That's it. Marvin, he was a friend of mine. And I was like, oh, there's something in that. I don't know. And that bass line killed me. So I saw Dennis the next day. I said, I love this. So we started working on it. And uh, we worked on it in the studio because they were already, they had already started the recording process. And we, every morning, locks and bagels over and coffee with the piano, the best way to write. And um, I had looked up all these titles Per Dennis, he said, see if any titles strike you of any of the songs that uh, Marvin Gaye had written. And, you know, like, talk to me so you can see what's going on. You know, that took some things from songs. And Jackie Wilson had recently died. So we were like, oh, maybe we should make him a second verse. It just kind of evolved, wrote itself. It was just magical. Of course, Dennis Lambert, one of the greatest of all times, looks at me and I said, yeah, I have an idea for a title because they wanted a modern day rock and roll heaven. I'd been sick a couple weeks prior with something, flu, cold, was watching TV and I had seen that movie Night Shift, which funny enough, a lot of people think the song was in the movie. So I said, what about Night Shift? Because, you know, people in heaven that are like kind of R&B, they're not going to be coming around in the daytime. They're on the night shift. You know, it's, it's cooler. He said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. He says, shh, shh, don't say anything. Give me a minute. Give me a minute. Give me a minute. Okay. Okay. Dead silence. All of a sudden, as only Dennis Lambert can do, he looks at me and he goes, hmm, uh, gonna be some sweet sounds coming down on the night shift. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That brilliant, brilliant. That was it, the song wrote itself for me. Gonna be some sweet sounds Who does that? That's awesome. Who does that? I have a weird question for you. This is a weird night shift question. Okay. 
You're writing this song about Marvin Gaye, Jackie Wilson, they're in heaven looking down, blah, blah, blah. Do you as a songwriter have to believe that it's possible that Marvin Gaye and Jackie Wilson are in heaven? No, not necessarily. But I do believe because so many things happen to me, I do believe I have magic around me and that people are watching over me. I feel that way about my husband, my nanny who took care of me as a child. There's people, you know, my dad, definitely. Let's say the fantasy would be that I would hope that they're all up there together, all of them, every one of them. And they have a hell of a band. Including Tupac, rapping, hit him up. Including Tupac, yes. You are a native of Chicago. When you were six years old, you had a piano and you put it at the front window of your house and you played shows on the street. You charged kids a quarter. True? True. What's your musical origin? How did this start for you? Well, you know, my mom was a pianist. My dad's family, they all played piano. And a lot of them took piano lessons from my mother's aunt, um, who was a pianist. Yeah, I mean, my mother was always playing stuff like, I still cry when I hear a lot of his songs, Jobim, you know, a lot of classics and standards. My dad's family, whenever we would be over there, they would get around the piano and sing together and harmonize. And music was always around. I mean, I, I was just drawn to it. And, you know, it's like a lot of interviews, they'll say, well, you know, what, what's your pain? You know, if you're an artist, a writer, you know, there's something that spawns you to, to become a writer. You know, I, I had a difficult childhood, probably like most people. My solace was having my transistor radio under my pillow. That's what was my friend. I, I related to the lyrics. You know, they were saying things that I felt and, it, you know, they made me cry. They made me laugh. They gave me energy. They gave me hope. I just loved music. Loved it. For you little kids out there, a transistor radio is a small <laughs> radio people used to have. And it wasn't attached to an iPhone. It was just a radio. Just a radio. It's the 1970s. You're a singer, songwriter in Chicago. You're playing at clubs. You're playing at the Gate of Horn. You're playing at Mr. Kelly's. You're in a group, Franny and Zoe. I'm being serious about this. Like, what was it? What was the playing in club scene like in Chicago? You're in your early 20s, scratching and clawing to make it. What is that scene like? Well, everything was magical. I mean, you know, being able to perform in a club and being out late at night and, you know, it was just, it was mysterious. It was sexy. You were kind of a star within that, you know, that club that you were working. People wanted to talk to you and uh, uh, they were excited by what you were doing. It was amazing. I mean, who was around then? You know, Aliota Haynes and Jeremiah, uh, Chicago, you know, all these bands um, that were native to Chicago. It was just such a great town. And my dad actually used to take me to Mr. Kelly's when I was little, like five, six years old, leave me at the bar with the bartender. I don't believe he did that, but it was crazy. He did. And I got to see, like, Sarah Vaughn, Carmen McRae, 
you know, comedians, like old comedians and just all these things that were so amazing that fed into everything that I did and became. Is there a Chicago sound that you think you absorbed or is that too simplistic? I definitely think the R&B thing started there. I, I always gravitated, you know, like I did listen to WCFL, WLS for the pop stations, but then there was WVON, Voice of the Negro, if you will, which was my station that I liked. My dad worked a lot with Black people. He he would uh, represent them at the bank, get them loans to open businesses. He was very big in the civil rights movement. Every fourth Friday night, we would go to my uncle Sid's house where they would raise money and play bingo and they would dance and eat food. And I was just so exposed to that. And then the music they would play at these, you know, at the end of the night at these dinners, uh, like Shotgun and, you know, all the Motown stuff. It's just incredible. On this podcast, I always enjoy finding the oldest thing I can find about someone. Here's what I got for you. This is June 3rd, 1976. It's a UPI story out of Chicago. Even in his heyday, Step and Fetch It was the object of scorn and ridicule by some elements of American public. Racially sensitive blacks and liberal whites said his foot shuffling, eye bugging antics on the movie screen brought embarrassment and shame upon the black race. But the black comic, whose real name is Lincoln Perry, always considered himself, quote, just entertaining. His popularity proved that millions felt the same way that Step and Fetch It was a very funny entertainer. Thousands who agreed that Step and Fetch It made a great contribution to showbiz in the 1930s and 40s assembled in Chicago's Airy Crown Theater on Memorial Day to pay tribute to him. It was a benefit for the ailing 84-year-old black cinema pioneer that starred Ben Vereen, Lovelace Watkins, and a certain singer named Franny Goldie, world boxing champ Muhammad Ali, was a master of ceremonies. Franny Goldie, do you remember this event? Like, absolutely. I mean, staple singers, Franny Goldie and Muhammad Ali. Are you kidding me? I was terrified and um, excited at the same time. I do remember it. I really didn't know at the time who Step and Fetch it was. Would not go over well in the Twitter generation. Exactly. Exactly. I do remember I was so nervous and I do remember Muhammad Ali coming over, putting his arm around me, talking about the Ropa-Dopa. He wanted to make this drink for me. He had this new special drink that would, I don't know, make me go out and kill um, on stage. And um, no, it was an, an incredible moment. I don't remember verbatim, but I remember... How do you forget being around, you know, the king, Muhammad Ali? And of course, the staple singers. I mean, come on, killer. Is Step and Fetch it on a cloud right now with Tupac and, uh, you know, Marvin Gaye? Hopefully. In preparing for this, I listened to a lot of your music, music songs that you recorded for yourself. You recorded in the, in the 1970s, you had albums, you had songs. Does there come a point where a singer-songwriter needs to say, okay, this is not happening for me commercially as a singer. Fuck, 
I'm a songwriter. Yeah. Luckily, I'm smart enough. I didn't keep, you know, pushing towards that. I'll never forget. I was performing in New York. I was killing it. I am a good performer. I am not a great singer. You know, I can sing. I never felt I had that identifiable voice. Like when you hear Elton John, Carly Simon, Carole King, James Tech, whoever it is, you know, Madonna, they have a sound. You know it's them the minute their voice comes on. Tracy Chapman. There's a distinct sound. And you go, oh, that's so-and-so. I never had that. But I will never forget, uh, I was killing it at the uh, Continental Baths, where Bette Midler got her start. And all the record executives came, including Clive Davis. And Clive came backstage at the end of my performance, and he goes, you're such a good performer, I don't know if you can sing, because I'm so taken with your performance. He said, I'd like to see you privately. Ugh. Anyway, uh, he set up a private audition and I mean, they all came with their suits and overcoats. Talk about scary and just you and your band and that's it. And no, you know, audience is just these suits sitting on chairs watching you. And afterwards he came over to me and said, I don't think you have that I don't know how he said it. I don't remember exactly how he said it, but he said what I just said, that I didn't have that sound, that identifiable voice. He said, but I do like a lot of your songs and I would keep doing that. That kind of stayed in my mind. I did still record after that, but it really never quite left me. And he was right. Is there a moment when someone says that, when your first reaction is, hey, go fuck yourself, I know I, I'm a star? Not for me, no, not for me. I knew I had something. I knew I was, you know, a great performer, which really paid off as far as like being able to be the one that could go out there and sell the songs. Because most writers are very isolated and loners. They don't like going out and pushing their own stuff. I never minded that. I liked choosing and going and meeting with people. Early in your songwriting career, you partnered a lot with Peter Ivers and you wrote Little Boy Sweet, which was recorded by the Pointer Sisters. Uh, Let's Go Up by Diana Ross. And in 1983, Peter Ivers was murdered, bludgeoned in his apartment. And this was your guy. Like, this was your partner. This was a guy you wrote with. This was obviously a very close friend of yours. What does that do to a songwriter? What does that do to your creativity and your sense of spirit and your sense of sort of adventure when it comes to music to have something like that happen? Well, as you say it, I feel it in my chest. I loved him so much. You know, when you write with somebody, it becomes, especially if you hit it off and you become like a team for a while, it's like a marriage. You know, you love this person. You see them almost every day. That took me a long time to get over. And I could not write for quite a while. It really changed me. I had never had somebody that close to me pass away. And so 
it was a new experience for for me. And um, yeah, I mean, I still miss him. I still keep all of his handwritten lyrics that I have. And I was very upset that his murder was never solved. I mean, I had my own thoughts of what might have happened. And I've talked about it in interviews and they just did a podcast about his murder. I mean, any death changes you, but, you know, especially when people are close to you. Did it change the way you approach music at all? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I always try to come from my heart and, you know, whatever I write. And I do remember my girlfriend who I was working with, or I, I was trying to work with, I just couldn't even sit at the piano. And she had me come over for lunch and she dragged me over to the piano bench and she said, sit down, put my hands on the keyboard. And she said, we're going to write a song. Come on. And it, it was a few months out from when he died. He died on March 3rd, 1983. So maybe six months down the line. And, uh, and we wrote a song. And we wrote a song and ended up getting covered with Tony Basil. But she did me a solid and uh, really pushed me. And, and I needed that. I needed that. I want to ask you about one more song you wrote because it was a staple of my boyhood. Don't You Want Me by Jody Watley. And I, like many of my friends, had a... I would say a crush on Jody Watley. Jody Watley was definitely a hottie back in the day. And, you know, like every kid loved Jody Watley. It's a fun, super fun song. Like, what do you remember about writing Stoney Well, she's an extraordinary lyricist. Like, you just play her a thing and she just comes up with shit. Like, it just flows out of her. Um, we got together. I was working with this guy, David Bryant. And uh, Jody joined us. We had this melody going and this track and she just started singing and laying lyrics down right away. And not only is she an incredible talent and all those things, you know, just cool, sexy, good person. She's one of my, I would say like sister from another mother type situations. Um, we've been through so much together and I just adore her. I, I think the world of her. And she is as good inside as out. She's just one of those really special people. Or as our people would say, a mensch. Oh, uh, beyond, yeah, total, total mensch. All right, confusing question for you. Yeah. You have a million songs to your credit. You now run a clothing boutique. Well... When my kid was in school, I, I have, uh, my, my child is uh, on the spectrum. And so we're always seeking out like, you know, the best schools and the best ways to help him. All the schools, whatever school you went to, you had to be part of the school fundraising. And, you know, after a while, I, I was able to get like a couple times, like signed guitars from Cheryl Crow. My husband got signed drumsticks from Ringo. You know, we looked very cool for a while. And then, you know, you can't, you run out of favors. So a lot of the moms would say, oh, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? They seem to like my vibe and my look. You know, you're a songwriter. You like to look cool and different, whatever. So um, 
I asked the school if I could do a boutique in the gym. And uh, they said, oh, sure, whatever you want to do, you know, as long as you bring in money. So um, I set up this boutique. I went downtown. I went to sample sales. I got all this stuff. I made candles. I love doing little arts and crafts. I made different things. Anyway, long story short, the boutique sold out. And I started getting phone calls. My mother-in-law this. My sister saw that. My cousin, can we come to your house? Do you have more stuff? That was it. It just evolved. I started working on these pants, this idea I had for a pair of pants. Crazy things. And my husband had been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. I was... I don't know, whatever, beyond devastated and heartbroken. I don't even know if there's a word. And I needed something to keep me going. And, you know, people were streaming and downloading. The music business was sort of in, I don't know, turmoil. Nobody knew what the new paradigm was going to be and what was going to happen. This was something to give, gave me something to do. Anyway... I just kept going forward. I just kept moving along with it as crazy as it was. I invested some of my own money and took care of him. That was my work. You know, I took care of my husband and would sell clothes and found a manufacturer and just different things happened. And the luckiest thing that happened was my girlfriend who introduced me to my manufacturer said, when you come up with these pants, I want the first pair. And I said, okay, fair enough. So I sent them to her. She was working with someone and they saw them and said, oh, I want a pair. So I sent her a pair. She happened to be best friends with this guy, Adam Glassman, who was Oprah Winfrey's stylist, fashion guru. She sends him this selfie and he's going, yeah, what? She said, these pants, these pants are awesome. You got to check them out. Fast forward, we send him the pants, and that was it. It was September. Nothing happened from there. And I had started my website in August, so this was like a month later. And never heard anything. One day in January, my girlfriend calls me, and she goes, oh, my God, are you sitting down? I'm standing in line line on a Target, and I'm coming through O Magazine. You're in there and they dubbed you the magic pant. And that was it. And then we were in People Magazine and Us Magazine and this magazine. Barbara Streisand always says that when you commit, that the universe conspires to, you know, help you. They show up. That's my life. That is my life. That is what happens time and time again. I'm glad my husband got to see it. I'm happy that I make people happy with my clothes. I'm glad that I've kept my toe dipped in the, in the music business with, you know, I sold my publishing because I was worried that I wouldn't have enough to take care of my husband. I kept my writer's royalties. And who would have thought that Bruce Springsteen would cut my fucking song? I mean, I just, I don't know. You know, there's so many tragedies in life and there's so much hardship but there's those slivers of things that happen that just 
I don't know, give you hope and keep, keep you keeping on. You know, my husband's motto was keep on keeping on. And until he couldn't speak anymore, that was his mantra. Keep on keeping on. I just want to say, so for people who don't know, that Spring Scene record, recorded on Night Shift. Yes, he did. And so within a two-week period, I find out about Springsteen. I get nominated to the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and my husband passes away. So it was kind of like a roller coaster, but it was grief and relief because I was just happy that he didn't have to live like that anymore. And stuff, you know, I don't think he knew he was suffering, but I was suffering watching him. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey. And what is that on your ankle? It's a tattoo of a boot. You got a tattoo of a boot on your ankle? Young lady, you're only 19 years old. Dad, calm down. It's not just any boot. I am so angry. Dad, it's the kicking shoe worn by Garrett Lindholm, kicker for the 2011 Milwaukee Mustangs of the Arena Football League. I wanted to let people know they can go to royalretros.com and buy a hand-stitched Made With Love Mustangs jersey. (sighs) Did you really have to get a tattoo to do this? The butt-piercing pavilion was closed. I'm required to ask this question on this podcast. I usually (laughs) asking sports writers who's the biggest asshole athlete they've dealt with and what's the story of the biggest conflict they have. In your career in music, what's your biggest asshole story? Oh, my God. The biggest asshole. I mean, there's a couple where, you know, especially when the, um, you know, like the whole music business was changing and it was more produced groups of producers and producers and track guys coming into the picture who weren't really songwriters, but, you know, write a track and you're a songwriter because you came up with a groove or a beat on a drum machine. Anyway, I had a couple of those instances um, and they pissed me off. But I'm not one of those people like, well, then screw you. You can't have a song. It's like, fine, whatever. You think you got, you know, you you deserve 20% gigas on your head, you know, whatever. It's like, is it the last thing I'm going to do? No. So I, I, I don't get hung up in the act. Uh, but those are the, yeah, the kind of asshole stories. I have but a I, final, final question for you. Okay. Because the amazing We Are the World documentary recently oh. debuted on Netflix, which is so fucking good. So fucking good. We've been having a debate in my house. And I think the singers involved in that song also have had this debate. And I'm going to ask you as a songwriter. Okay. You have to answer honestly, okay? Okay. Is We Are the World a good song? I mean, is it a good song? I remember it. You know, I I go around after I saw the documentary, I was for three, four days. We are the world. We are the children. I mean, it's hooky. You know, was I upset that it was number one for so effing long that Night Shift never could get to number one? Uh, Yes. But um, no, I mean, you know, and it did so much good. Wait, let me let me follow it since we both watched the documentary. Yeah, go, go. You have to answer this, okay? Uh Uh-oh. 
Who's the star of We Are The World? Who is the singer you consider the star of that song? If you had to pick, who owns that song? The thing that sticks in my mind, it's crazy. This is, and, I, and I'm not saying this because of Night Shift. Bruce, with yeah. his like back and forth and his answers and his kind of like just riffing over everybody. It's so distinct. He was so just doing his thing. And, and, and I also, uh, Cindy Lauper. They're the winners of We Are the World. Yeah, I, yeah, I would say so. The two losers of that documentary were Prince for kind of sounding like an asshole for not coming and um, Al Jarreau for being drunk. Yeah, yeah. And my favorite, one of my favorite moments was when they all sang to Harry Belafonte oh. and that they knew the song and they knew the lyrics. What a tribute to him. You know, let me ask you a final, final, final question. You can ask me as many questions as you want. We put you in a room right now. So right now you're a veteran <laughs> songwriter. You kind of still have one foot in the business, but it's not your full attention. We throw you in a room with uh, Taylor Swift and Olivia Rodrigo. And the three of you have five hours to write a song. Do you feel like you can come out the winner? A uh, winner? I don't know, but I could definitely contribute. I mean, when I'm around, when you're around, you know, if somebody put you and me in a room, we could write something great, you know, an art. I don't know about music, but I mean, we could come up with something, you know, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Franny, I'm glad we finally got to do this to nervous, anxious California Jews living out their best lives, loving we are the world loving post Lionel Commodores. Okay. Seriously, thank you so much for doing this. It's been like- a Oh joy. my God, it is my pleasure. I hope we can do it again. I would love to meet you in person sometime. That'd be great. And, yeah. I want to thank today's guest, Franny Goldie, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Franny on Instagram at Franny Goldie Official and visit her website, FrannyGoldie.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, Please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding.